Old Testament scripture is from Daniel chapter 6. We're spending a lot of time in Daniel in our service, uh, in our sermon series on uh, church, government, and the Christian in Romans 13, taken from Romans 13, um, because it's so much. Here, here are the Israelites um, in captivity in Babylon under another government, and how do they act in that way? Well, they set the, the model, the example for all of God's people, for the, for the Christians, and so we're going to read, and this is familiar, um, Daniel, head into the lines then. You see the inner workings with the magistrate and how, how things go in that way. And you see when they can be cruel and corrupt and how we're to respond as God's people. Again, keep this in mind as we go through the sermon this week, also next week. Um, it's just, just amazing to see God's hand in all of this. So Daniel chapter 6. And the first uh, 15 verses. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, a satrap is just a governing official, the magistrate, okay? Official position. To be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom David was one, I'm sorry, Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because of an excellent spirit, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and the satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or any man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows open in the upper chamber. I'm sorry, where windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition Three times a day. Well, then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. 
Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Now, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persian that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. And then you know what happens from there. Daniel gets into the lion's den. Our New Testament reading is, our passage for today is Romans chapter 13. So I'm going to ask you to please turn to Romans 13. And we'll read, actually this morning, the uh, first four verses. Romans 13 and 1 through 4. Paul says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists, resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Well, and our reading there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you and praise you so much. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time, Lord God. I pray that you would be with all of us. Help us to be engaged in, in your word, Lord God, every, every day, every morning, right now, especially as we come before your word together. Pray that you would be with me. Give me your words, Lord, to preach, to teach, and help us to receive these things. Help us to ponder these things. Help us to know these things. Help us to live these things out. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's always about what we do, not just what we know, but what we do. So this is a very relevant passage for us. It always has been, but especially since 2020, when things went down and you know, mandates coming into the church and we're seeing what's happening in the world around us, especially with the government, the instability, what's happening with Christians, all of that. So now Romans 13 is really taking a higher level of importance for us and significance for us, I think. So we're kind of working through that. And that's why I'm taking some time. We'll be doing at least one more sermon, maybe two in this section. Um, but remember last week, we didn't really look at the passages per se, but we... It served as an introduction to all of this, our relationship as Christians, especially to the magistrate. Today, we're going to take a little bit closer look in the implications of the text before us. One through four is our obligation to the magistrate and also the magistrate's obligation not only to us, but also to God especially. That's what I want to kind of focus in on this morning and talk about. So, Verses 1 and 2, let every person be subject to governing authorities. That's tough right away, isn't it, when you're in, you know, in a situation as we find ourselves in, and as Christians have found themselves in over the centuries. For there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, so... This is our obligation to the magistrate. Verse 1 and 2, they are commands, just so you know. It's not a suggestion. It's not how you should think about, you know, submitting to the laws. We're not above the law as Christians. It's not like, oh, we have this law and we're not going to obey, you know, 
the the magistrate's laws in, in this area. We're not like that. No, no. First Peter uh, chapter two verses thirteen and fourteen also reiterate this or speak to this. Be subject for the Lord's sake, and there's our motivation to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme. And remember, at this time, Christians were under heavy, heavy persecution. Um, and they're, and they're still being told to, to honor the magistrate in that way, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So it is a, a command. And, and that word, to subject yourself, that's really, really strong. It means to place yourself under authority, to respect and obey, submitting yourselves voluntarily to authority. Again, that kind of could be tough for us in different difficult for us in certain circumstances. But the reason, the motivation behind it, why we do it as Christians, because we're told here government is an institution that is from God. That's why. Whoever resists the governing authorities resists what God has ordained. And so that's important to remember. We don't want to be inconsistent as Christians. We don't want to say, yes, we're Christians, we believe, we're going to obey, and then live in ways that are contrary to his word, to his law, and disrespecting that which he that which he has given to us. Does that make sense so far? Good. So, we do not, as Christians, adopt an Anabaptist view. I know you're like sitting on the edge of your seat, but what What if the laws aren't right? Don't worry, we're going to get to that. We'll cover that as well. But right now, this is this is a primary for us. Listen, though, we do not want to adopt an Anabaptist view. That's a big deal for us. I know we have our um, homesteading initiative in our church, and people are like, what's that? You know, what Are we turning into the Amish? I said, no, 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 not, no, not at all. All that is, it's kind of um, taking into account everything that's happening around us. And if things should go south very quickly, we want to be want to be able, as God's people, to really be there for each other, have resources that we can share with one another, skills that we can teach one another, help each other, especially as we see, and perhaps as things are going, uh, downhill very quickly. So, so we're doing it in that way. We're not turning into Amish. We're not Anabaptists. But that's very important to this, because that that's a different... Um, relationship that they have to the governing authorities. Okay, we know the Amish, we see them and, and other Anabaptist groups. But the Anabaptists, they were separatists. And I'm going to tell you, in this place, they're wrong in the, in the way they deal with the, the world around them. Um, Anabaptist groups formed at the time of the Protestant Reformation. There were many groups. You probably know the Mennonites. How many of you heard Mennonites are still around today? And, of course, the Amish, they're very popular, especially in this state, but other states as well, Ohio, different places. Um, most, they're the most well-known. So let me tell you this, because there's a relationship here. And this is where we do not want to go. Even though we have issues with governing authorities when they pass unjust laws and, and ordinances, but we're not separatists. The Amish, for instance, we'll just use them as the example, they reject participation in secular society. That includes government. So they don't abide, they, I'm sorry, they do abide by the civil laws, you know, most of them, but they have little to do as possible with civil authorities. Now that kind of sounds good for us right away up front, doesn't it, a little bit? You know, they really don't want to be bothered in that way. They do not hold a political office. They do not vote, at least most of them do not vote. They do not participate in civic life. They're pacifists as well. They're not going to serve in any branch of the military. They're, they're not going to do that at all. They're, they, they have their communities. Within their communities, they don't have their own police force. 
Um, they don't really have a magistrate, but it, they're, they're, they're ruled by their elders. So the elders in the community, uh, when things go wrong, they, they, people come before the elders. Now remember last week, we talked about the three institutions that God has ordained for us and for society as we seek to honor and glorify Him and will answer for. Those three are family, remember, the, uh, church and the government. We talk, so we want to kind of use that as a grid in our dealings. So when we think about the Amish, for instance, when it comes to family, they check the box there really well, don't they? They really, that is central to the separatist group, that family, the community, the extended family, how they help each other, how they assist one another. They live in that way. Like we kind of want to emulate that a little bit with our, with our homestead initiative where we have the skills and abilities where we're, where we're kind of self-sufficient but helping one another. That's a very good thing, very close in that way. It's good to be sure. However, where that falls short with the separatists is they have no fellowship with other believers. It's just this little group. We'll talk, not, I don't want to get too deeply into the doctrine, but at least with other professing Christians, there's really no, we, we're across the board. We will fellowship with you. We might not have the same doctrinal, um, we might have doctrinal differences, but we're going to, if you're a Christian, we're going to relate to one another. The separatists kind of, they're just that. They stay separate, not just from the world, but even from other Christians. That's not good. That's not cool. That's not what we do. They stay in their self-contained communities. When it comes to church, so for instance, the Amish, of course, Scripture is their authority, but as you dig deeper into their doctrine, into their teachings, do you want to know something? They're very much works-based. Very much works-based. If you grew up Roman Catholic, we always did our works. Want to make sure we do good. Want to make sure we're earning, hoping that we do enough. That God. That's kind of what the Amish are like as well. It's it's a it's a works-based salvation. They profess Christ died for sins, of course, but they really hope by their goodness, by the things that they do, their respectfulness, their all their teachings, that they will earn God's favor in the end, and their their good will out, outweigh their their bad. So you could see how that would lead to legalism, and there's very much steeped in legalism that the whole idea of what they can and can't do, what they should and shouldn't do, how you know that that kind of living is pretty extreme in many ways. But listen, the most important thing, what I want you to hear, what they miss most is is the most important function that we have as the church. Our calling, our duty is what? It's to make disciples of all the nations. That's what we're called to do. David, we just read that that morning in Dave's uh, blurb on, on the abortion clinic. Listen, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go and make disciples. Go and preach the gospel. Go and go and proclaim the good news to all the nations. That's what we do as Christians. That's what we're called to do. We don't separate. We don't just stay in our little group, but we're out there. We're in there. That's what we do. We go and make disciples of all nations, proclaiming, teaching them to observe. We teach. We grow. We, we, we help them to learn, and then we send them out. Acts 1.8 tells us this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're going out with the gospel. That's what we do. We don't stay in our little... We are salt and light. That's what we're called to be as Christians. And it's hard, I know, because we're living in a dark place, in dark times. We're living in a world that wants to hear what they want to hear. They don't want to hear the truth necessarily. Do you understand that? That's why it's difficult at times to be a Christian. 
It's always wonderful to be a Christian, but it's hard as we're being faithful in a world that doesn't like what you like ultimately. You know, they, they might go along with you to a point, but when you press the claims of the gospel, what, what's in, involved in living for Jesus Christ? Well, then that's too much. All right, so we have that that we're going against. For uh, separatist groups, I think for the Amish, their form of evangelism is what? You know, when you look at them, what do you think? Wow, they're such nice people. <laughs> they're good people. They're they're good workers. We we hire the Amish to come and do work, and they do solid work. They don't, you know, they they work very hard, and and they do the best that they can. They're very respectful, right? Their chase lifestyle, at least outwardly, you know, all all of that. You kind of look at the that's their evangelism. That's how they evangelize. They're not going to go and talk to you about Jesus Christ, your need for repentance and, and trusting in him. They want you to see how they live and be attracted by that. Okay, there's a little bit something to that, but that's not our our major calling as Christians. So they want to win you without a word. Being in and not of the world, for them, they go way too far with that. They're mostly out of the world. That's not how we operate as Christians. Even when it comes to government, again, as little as possible, it's elder-led communities. It's kind of in-house. You kind of stay over there. They don't concern themselves with worldly matters, with civil or political issues. They kind of want to be left alone. And again, there's something cool about that in a way. I know some of you are like, yeah, what? It's not that cool. It's not that cool. It's, 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 we need to be involved. They've taken themselves out. What happens ultimately in their, in the mindset, at least it seems to me, it's, it's utopian. They want the consummation to be here. They want it to be what, now what it's going to be like when Christ comes back and makes everything new to the best that they can. We don't want to be defiled by the world. We want everything to be as pure as it can be. We, we want to, to live on our beautiful, and I, I, man, check out the, like we look at Amish life, it's like, man, that's cool. They have beautiful farms, rolling farms. They have the, the, the animals. They have, like a lot of us in this congregation, like, man, I wish we had that, right? But, but that's, that, that's kind of the idea. Hard working, simple lives. Self-governed as far as possible. But in reality, we need to be in the world. That's our calling. We can, that time will come. That time will come when the Lord comes back and, and everything's made new. Amen and praise God. But right now, beloved, we are the church militant. That means, that means, theologically speaking, we are engaged in this world with the gospel. We're bringing the good news to a fallen people. We're bringing news that they don't necessarily want to hear, especially at first, and that causes a friction. The church militant. That's what we are right now. That's who you are. That's what we need to be. The history of the church, the truly converted Christians, have been commissioned to function as Jesus Christ commands us to. We don't live separately. As much as that's a temptation, as much as we'd like to, don't bother me, world. No, we don't live that way. We live according to his word, his precepts. In whatever political system, circumstance, situation, that we find ourselves in. We do not separate. We engage. We, we, we don't run away from. We run to. Right? We're like this. Like when a building's burning and you see people running from it, we're the ones that are going to it. 
with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes and amen. That's a, that's so important to understand this. We live, and check this out, we live and we function in this nation at this time in history the same way, with the same word and the same principles that the Christians did in the first century, that God's people have always operated in, in whatever situation they found themselves in. And that's being faithful to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Romans 13, 1 through 7, that's nothing new. It's not novel. It's normative for Christians. This is how God's people always have interacted when they're being faithful with the government, with the magistrate. The principles now were the same principles then. That's it. Just time has changed. Time has moved on. So I want to think of Daniel. Let's think of Daniel again. Let's go back. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. How did they react? We'll see more of this next week. They preserved, and here's what's really important. They preserved their godly character while respecting the rulers and authorities of Babylon. That's what they did. They lived in peace insofar as they could with them. And they did obey the laws insofar as they could. They were, they were respectful. They didn't become Babylonians, but they retained their identity while honoring the king. And that's the trick. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to make sure that we're seeking to do. Even when they had to disobey... They remained respectful and had integrity. Listen, they weren't afraid. Don't be afraid, Christian. Don't, don't give in to the government because we're afraid. That's not why we, Daniel and his friends didn't do that. Were they afraid? Remember what they said? We're going to put you in that fiery furnace. Go ahead. We know that our God can deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we're still not going to obey an unrighteous law that you give us to do. They're not afraid. We don't do that. We don't obey out of self-preservation, but out of obedience to God. You understand? That's very important to, to know. Do all that you can to honor the office, respect the magistrate, pray for them, abide by the lawful laws, be charitable, even put up with laws and ordinance that may bring us discomfort, you know, excessive taxes. Man, this is, and there's ways to deal with that, but, but we're not going to say, well, we're Christian. We're not going to pay these taxes. We're not going to do that. And we'll talk more about that next week, but, but that's not who we are as Christians. We're going to be put out. We're going to, there's going to be discomfort in that way for sure. Even out at the abortion clinic, they have that safety zone, and that's kind of ambiguous. Something you can go into that. If you've been down to the clinic, they have this yellow line that goes around the front door, and if you're protesting you can come up but you can't go over that line apparently but maybe you can maybe you can i think it's look that just a that that's a nuisance it takes our eyes off of we could stay behind and still preach if we need to do we want to that it's a discomfort in that way but is that something a hill we want to die on right you know those kinds of things you have to make sure but we have to be sincere we have to seek to honor them we have to pray for them. And not necessarily for their destruction, but for their repentance first. And if they don't repent, then Lord, please judge them and deal with them. But we need to be sincere. We don't just give lip surface and say, yeah, I know we're supposed to be nice, but in my heart I wish they were dead. And listen, we truly, truly need to pray for the magistrate and obey insofar as we're able. And never let them point to you and say, you know, I, if they can't stand us because we love Jesus, that's cool. But if they can't stand us because we're being jerky and stupid, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Okay? First Timothy 2, 1 and 2 tells us this. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. 
Here it is, for kings and for all who are in high positions, we are commanded to pray for the magistrate, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet, godly life, dignified in every way. So the implication there is, Lord, please give them godly hearts, that they would rule well, that they would rule just in a just way. Pray for that, that their hearts are changed, that they would be uh, looking to you in the way that they rule and, and bring forth the laws. Luke chapter 2, we're not going to turn there, but you remember in Luke 2, Joseph obeyed the edict of Augustus. Now, just think about that situation. And this is how far we need to go in terms of seeking to be obedient. Remember, Joe, there in Nazareth, they had to go all the way down to Bethlehem. It's a long way with a woman who's just about to deliver her child. But they did obey the civil magistrate. And it wasn't like it was a really great, great reason. Part of it was to, to go to your hometown, take a census to figure out how much more you could, how much more taxes could be collected from you. And yet they travel that hard trips in obedience to the civil government, in obedience to the Lord. That's the mindset that we have to have. It has to do with honoring and obeying God. It has to do with our witness to Jesus Christ. That's why we do it. It acknowledges, when we do this, it acknowledges God's sovereignty and his divine providence, that we're in the very place and time that he wants us to be in, and he expects us to be faithful to him in that time and place. So in Daniel uh, chapter 2, verse 21, he changes his time and season, he removes kings, and he sets up kings. So the kings that are set up, the magistrate that we're under, he set them up. This is his providence. And we're expected to be faithful to him in that circumstance. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. It's about God's providence. So we see it from that pers- in that perspective. Listen to this. God's people have always been expected, and this is for you to hear this morning, you need to be the best citizens, the most honorable, the most respectful, the most trustworthy, the most honest, the most sincere citizens of all the others. Understand that? It doesn't depend on the governing authorities or type of government and power. We show, you show all due respect and obedience insofar as you can. In other words, don't despise them. Don't hate them. Pray for them. Understand that they are there. God has placed them there, and he's placed you where you are. So how are we going to deal with them? Primarily, it is in this way. Showing that respect, showing that honor, being the best citizen. Don't say, well, that's, I'm going to do that just to spite them. I'm going to try to get away with it. Don't have that spirit. Don't have that attitude. Be the best. Because we're honoring and representing the Lord. I know you're still chomping at the bit, but when can we disobey? Okay, that's next week. For this week, just transition, verses 3 and 4. Hmm. Check this out. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. See, right there you want to stop and say, what? That's not always true. That's perplexing in some ways, isn't it? Because there are times when we are good, and they're bad, and they're wanting us to do bad things, and if we're just trying to be good, then we're going to get in trouble for that. Right? Do you feel that? Do you feel that tension? I do. It says, for the rulers are not of no terror to those of good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, the avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So now listen to this. Very important, because it is perplexing, especially when you see blatant corruption and abuses from the magistrate. Whether it's a, a cop who pulls you over and you know wants to bribe you or, or like kind of lie, or the president of the nation who's telling falsehoods. Do you know what I mean? It's it's like it doesn't see the truth here 
This is the truth about every governing authority, and that's what I want you to see. Now, number one, generally speaking, it is true. When we obey the laws, we stay out of trouble. We do no good. So generally, in, Paul, in, in, in certain ways, means that you don't want to hear terror, then be good, then follow the laws. And that's going to work most of the time, you know. If we're good citizens in that way, then we don't really have too much to worry about in authority, especially as the, as the authority is godly. But even when it's not, there's, there's still we still want to obey and do what's right, right? But there's times when you can get into trouble for doing the right thing, and that's where the rub comes in. So you have a baker who says, look, I'll serve you, I'll do anything you want, but I cannot bake a cake for this particular occasion because it, it, my conscience is against it. it. It goes against my beliefs. It goes against what God says. So I, I'm not going to bake a cake for a wedding, a so-called wedding, between a same-sex couple. I can't do that. I'll do everything else. I'll do a birthday cake. I'll do this. I'll do that. But my conscience will not allow me to do that for particular reasons. But now there's ordinances that say you must do that or you're going to get in trouble. See, see the rub? I'm, I'm doing good, but I'm going to get in trouble for that. Now we're going to deal much more with that next week and how we respond to that. But see, there's, there's, there's that rub there. But verses 3 and 4, although they're generally true for the most part, if you do good, you stay out of trouble, that's fine. You know, you know people that break the law all the time and always get in trouble or doing this, doing that. When you keep it, you're pretty good. That's here. But here's what I really want you to see, especially as he talks about that tension that we have. Verses 3 and 4 speak, and here's the important thing. It speaks to the design, the intention, the expectation, the standard, even if it's not the current reality of all who govern. So it's not just speaking to us. It is. We need to, to abide by the laws, the righteous laws, insofar as we can. But you better believe also that God designed government. And this applies. And this is what you need to get through your mind and through your through our heart, through our heads and to our hearts, because this applies to all governments everywhere, all the time. They're under the authority of God. The world is the Lord and all that it contains. He is the supreme one. We talked about this last week. Over all the kingdoms, over all the rulers over all the kings they will answer to him remember Nebuchadnezzar found that out so you need to have that mindset you need to understand that that there's an obligation for the rulers for the magistrate to be obedient to the Lord that's underneath this the leaders the magistrates the civil servants will be held to account and they will give an answer for how they governed because they have the law of God within them because God's laws are righteous do you understand that God's design his intention for civil government is this, very simply, to serve and protect. They are called deacons of God. That word servant, right there, they're called servants of God, that is actually deacons. They are the deacons of God. What do deacons do? They serve. They, they provide mercy. They provide care. They are servants, and they protect. So listen, protect, preserve, promote life, promote liberty, preserve, promote peace. How? Through just laws through righteous ordinances, through proper law enforcement that deters and that restrains and that's honest, through due process with impartiality, factuality, and lawfully appropriate punishment where the punishment fits the crime. Now, it sounds like a lot like our Constitution. Or, well, yeah, that, a lot of it is borrowed from Scripture. These are biblical principles. These are biblical ideas. Do you understand that? The magistrate will answer to the Lord. This isn't only for us, but it's, it's a message to them implicitly that you better rule in a way that is righteous, in a way that I've put forth, because you will be answering to me. And that's part of the reason we can really pray 
for our magistrate and seek to obey because we know if they don't turn and repent, they will answer to the Lord specifically for how they governed. Do you understand? That's a big deal. It's a big deal. Listen, good laws, every good law, every good ordinance is rooted in God's moral law. It just is. Some people that don't have as much light, they, they do it by God's common grace, but those governing authorities know in their heart of hearts, good laws, ordinances are rooted in the moral law of God all the time, every time, every single time. Let me give you an example. I don't know if my, my guys are going to be preaching on this as we go through it, through the, as they go through the Ten Commandments, but the Sixth Commandment, let's just think of that explicitly. What's this sound so simple? Thou shalt not murder. Okay? Thou shalt not murder. It sounds, but there's so much more to that as you consider all of scripture, as you consider the implication of the commandments themselves. Explicitly, the sixth commandment prohibits unlawful taking of a life. We know that. We know that intuitively. We know that because God has told us. So, when it comes to murder, there's all different kinds of degrees. Okay? It's a premeditated murder. It's a first degree, second degree, and those are good distinctions to make in terms of punishment. But it does prohibit the un- the unlawful taking of a life. That's what the Sixth Commandment teaches straight up front. It also speaks to um, all kinds of bodily harm. Why? Because this commandment is meant to protect and preserve life. That's what's behind it. It's about life. It's preserving life. It's promoting life. It's protecting life. That's really what the sixth commandment is all about. So, so even those laws, anything that has to do with bodily harm, if people come, assault, violence, that goes back to the sixth commandment. So we have laws and statutes regarding that. But take it down even to another level. Make this connection to the sixth commandment implicitly, not just explicitly, but implicitly. It, it's, it's meant to preserve and promote life. That's why we have seatbelt laws. That's why, and I know some of you don't like that. That's why we have stop signs. That's why we have speed limits. That's why we have traffic lights. Because it's meant to preserve light. That goes right back to the sixth commandment. And that's why when you go through a red light and you get pulled over, you're going to pay that fine. Why? Because you're putting life in danger. That goes back. It's rooted here. Remember growing up, if any of you guys know Logan Road and South Park Road, that intersection, four-way, Palma, you remember our intersection? Remember when they didn't have the stoplights there? How many times there were accidents? Almost every week, me and my sisters would run up because there were, you know, we'd hear the sirens and there'd be cars over the hill almost running into that house over there near there because they didn't have, they finally put stoplights up. It's made such a big difference, right? That's the sixth commandment. It's preserving life. No driving under the influence. It's just a bad idea. Why? Because you can kill somebody, you can kill yourself. Sixth commandment. It's covered there. That's where the laws and ordinance come from. You're in the city. You see a building that's condemned. No trespassing. This building's condemned. Why? Because if you go in there, it might fall on you and kill you. It's preserving life. Good laws and ordinances are always rooted in the law of God, in the moral law of God. We could go on and on with the different commandments, example after example. So that's what you seek to do. God designs, it's God's intention for government to serve the people as deacons of God, to protect, to promote, to preserve life, liberty, and peace through the faithful discharge of their office. From the cop on the beat to the president of the United States. That's what government's there for. And it's under God. They're not a terror for those who do good. But what happens when the godless govern? And this is where I'm going to come to an end here in this message. But I want you to hear this, because this is more and more relevant for us in the day and age in which we live. When the godless govern, 
you're going to see everything I just talked about kind of turned on its head. They will not promote justice, but they will pervert justice. Is that happening now? Amen. Don't say amen, but yes. It's partial. It shows partiality. It plays favorites. It's biased, and there's double standards. You know at that point that they're not seeking to obey God and his word. They're not under the authority of God. In actuality, they're turning their, their, their face against him. Saying, I don't want anything to do with you, God. I'm going to govern the way I want to govern. We're going to govern the way that we see fit. And we don't really need you to govern the way we want to, but this is a result of that because you have to govern the way God has put forth because he's God. Where godless government reigns, you will see corruption, flippancy, dishonesty, deceitfulness, and incompetence. Just incompetence. They don't know what they're doing. What decisions are they making? Why are they passing this? How can they be doing these kinds of things? Yeah. They don't know. They don't know what they're doing, or they don't care. Or they do know, and they don't care. Where the godless govern, you will see abuse of their authority. That they're going to use that office, that position, and that place to pressure you. To come down on you. They'll pass unlawful, and that is not in accordance with God's law legislation. You know that this godless government, when they pass legislation that is unlawful, when it's because it's not in accord with God's law. So we could think of ourselves now, a Bergefeld, LGBTQ regulations and laws that are, that are making their way through and coming, coming on. Right? You see that? By the way, when we think about a Bergefeld, that legalized same-sex marriage, and many of the LGBTQ uh, laws and ordinances that are coming through, guess what commandment that is connected to? Right? Don't commit adultery. What? Don't commit adultery. That seventh commandment regulates all sexual behavior. So you want to answer the question, well, why not commit adultery? The Bible says don't commit adultery. Why not? Because God doesn't like it, of course. Why not commit it? Why? Because sex is defined by God. And God says everything outside of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. And any laws that promote anything else are wrong and sinful. Do you understand? Because it's God who made you, who made us, who says do not commit adultery. That commandment regulates all sexual activity. So anything outside of that is considered sin. Do you understand? See how that works? It comes back when there's when there's moral laws. And we have laws like that on the book against prostitution, against deviant sexual behavior. There were laws. Restrictive ordinances that limit your freedoms, bind your conscience, selective enforcement. We're going to charge you for this, but we're going to let that go. Excessive penalty for lesser crimes, light sentences for serious crimes, where they intimidate, target otherwise innocent people. We watched a documentary, and we are going to have another night at the Two Lies coming up real soon. It's called Police State. That's where we invite this congregation to come to the Two Lies, and we're going to check this out together and even even talk about it. You're going to see a lot of what I'm telling you here this morning, much more than I'm telling you this morning, how that's true. 
how just for being a Christian, how standing outside of an abortion clinic and praying is going to have the FBI come into your house at times. I don't want to be over, I'm not trying to be over the top, but I just want to be on top of this. And this kind of idea that we're talking about being in the world, and as we're faithful to the Lord, we can expect more of these things. So FBI come into your house, knocking your door down, taking a wife out in front of her kids, screaming and crying. Why? Because she protested at an abortion clinic or didn't want her kid to to take drugs to to uh, transition. That's where we're at. At this point, they're no longer servants but tyrants. They do not protect, but they oppress. Now listen, you've always had, we've always had, you always have some of this in every government, obviously. There's always been corrupt politicians. There's always been people on the take. There's always been people that abuse their power, so on and so forth. But when it takes hold and most of the people in the magistrate, in the positions of authority are doing this, then you're in trouble. I think we're in trouble. I hope things change, but I think we're in trouble. Because you know what the results are? The results are these. Partiality, miscarriages of justice, fear. People are afraid. They're afraid of the authorities, and more so. I'm I'm just talking in our context. Fear. Little confidence in their elected officials. Just How much confidence do you really have? Aren't you a little afraid? Something you might say or something you might do that's chaos, disorder. Watch the nightly news. I don't recommend it, but if you do... Uh, you'll see that. Lawlessness all over the place. I'm so afraid. Every night we pray for our kid, William, who lives in Chicago. He's a flight attendant when he's in Chicago. It's like, please, Will, no, Lord, keep him safe, but I had your protection around him. And I'm not kidding. I'm serious. This kid's riding on a subway. In, 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 the, in the airport itself, you have all these tents and tent cities with the illegal immigrants and migrants that are there in the airport, taking over, on the train, people sleeping on the train. But he's so afraid, even of the young kids, like the 14, 15, 16-year-olds that don't care. It's like what happened with the chiefs last week. They were juveniles. Lawlessness. Oppression. How many of you are starting to feel oppressed? I don't know how to think about what I'm doing here. We're five years ago. We're free. But now I better watch what I say. I'm feeling that oppression. A whole lot of pain, a whole lot of sorrow, a whole lot of destruction, and ultimately a whole lot of death comes from this, from a lawless government. Increasingly, what we believe as Christians, what we know to be true as Christians, is coming at odds with the civil authority. Now, we need to honor. Everything I said earlier is very true. We need to honor. We need to respect. But what else? Can we serve as a corrective? Must we serve as a corrective? Must we call them to Christ and remind them of their duty before God, no matter what it costs us? And can we say no to certain lines that are crossed? The short answer to that is yes, all three. Next time, you're going to see why when, and how.